Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 229 and this episode is with the Director of Medical at West Bromwich Albion, Tony Strudwick. Tony came on and we discussed some lessons he learned from working alongside Sir Alex Ferguson. We talked about building a high-performance team. We talked about what makes the world's best players a success. Then we discussed how coaches can achieve best in class. We also spoke about how he rates the level of support in football, what we can do better as an industry. Also, players working with external coaches, external practitioners, and where he sees the future of sports science as well. So I thoroughly enjoyed this episode with Tony. At the start of the year, which is not so long ago, I sat down, I wrote down three names of people that I wanted to get on the podcast, three big names I wanted to get on. Tony was one of them. So I'm glad to say in March that I've kicked off one of the three targets for the podcast. It was a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think we covered some great topics and I hope you take plenty away from it. I would say as well that we did a very special YouTube episode in this podcast. So I know a lot of you will be listening to the podcast. You don't normally watch them. But I would say if you get a chance, go and check it out over on YouTube as well, because that is available now on Football Fitness Federation YouTube page. Just a couple of things before we get into the episode. We have got a networking event coming up in April. That is going to be over in Dublin at the National Games Development Centre on Thursday the 6th of April, 6 till 9pm. Two presenters at this event, we've got Director of Coaching and Performance at Satanta College, Des Ryan, alongside Shane Murphy, who's the Men's National Team Sports Scientist at the Scottish FA. So two brilliant practitioners with a wealth of experience and knowledge. Really, really excited to see the guys presenting over there. Early bird tickets are still available as this, as this podcast episode goes out. They will be available up until a couple of weeks beforehand, before the event. So make sure you go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and grab yourself a ticket for the Dublin event there. And we will have some more events to confirm very soon as well. Just on that as well, if you are interested in hosting an event at your club this year or speaking at an event, please get in touch. You can drop us a message on footballfitfed on social media, Twitter, Instagram, or search for us over on LinkedIn. Or you can email us, mail at footballfitfed.com. I want to say a massive thank you to our sponsors. Hytro, have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? For pro sports teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure-validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximise athletic potential like never before. Whether in the changing room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hytro has created a simple and effective tool that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. You can check them out at hytro.com or email teamsales at hytro.com to find out how Hytro BFR can give your squad a competitive edge. Also, a huge thank you to our sponsors, Rezzle, and I hope you enjoy episode 229 with Tony Strudwick. Rezzle is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezzle Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezzle, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is a very special episode today. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Director of Medical here at West Brom, Tony Strudwick. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Big but, fan of the show, obviously, and uh, it's been a long time coming, right? It certainly has. It certainly has. No, I really appreciate you freeing us up and also having us here. We're at the training ground here at West Brom, yep. um, so it's great to come down and do this in person, which I do like doing yep. with these podcasts, so I really appreciate you freeing up some time. We've got quite a bit to get through in terms of topics today, some of which I'm really excited to speak to you about. I was deciding, I was umming and ahhing on topics to start with, 
I feel like there's one area that I've got to go into first to make sure we box it off. You spent a number of years working with Sir Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. There's been a lot of players recently doing podcasts and doing interviews, talking about the sort of values and standards that he um, put onto them that they've carried forward. I wanted to ask a similar question to you. Yeah, it's, it's an easy one, isn't it? And uh, I, th I think that the main thing, I, listen, I was incredibly fortunate to join Sir Alex in the for the last six years of his career at Manchester United. So I think f from that perspective, a lot of the kind of cultural behaviours and values that were pretty much set and consistent, I think one of the, the key features around the environment, it was just, it was just so self-managing. Mm. So the players uh, will, will drive the standards, the, the, the setup around, uh, you know how how we operate and, and and how you buy into certain things was was really really easy. So in, in one sense, it was a really it was a pretty straightforward role to go into. I think that the flip side of that is that you know, some of the key things you you learn for Sir Alex is that he was a serial winner, and so he was always looking to drive innovation. We always used to say that for for his you know from his perspective, it was that that, that treadmill was always moving. So it's when you've won one league, it's okay, what can we do to, to move on to the next one? And I think there's a, a, a really famous quote by Sir Alex about the what sports science offered him and some of the major advances in the game have, have come through sports science. And and I think that, that was really, that was quite refreshing, Ben, because we're going into work with a, you know, a very experienced coach that, that had been in you know Manchester United for 20, 20, 20 plus years, but what that shows is that even at that that phase of his career, he was still looking for ways to 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 keep ahead of the competition, and that that was always the mantra behind Man United. So we talk about high performance. What is high performance? What it's about being efficient, creating the right product. But you know, in in the football environment, in the sporting environment, it's about winning and success and driving standards on. So. So that that was that was kind of great. It feels a little bit like that that defined my career a little bit, mm. but because you know subsequently and in fact before that, I mean if I look at all the kind of experience I've, I've had, some I've been really really lucky working in the industry for, blimey, across four decades now I think it is. But every environment you go into, you take something from it. So from my, my first role at Coventry, that really was about totally immersing yourself in in what it's about. Then I. I I had roles at the English FA, West Ham, Blackburn, kind of they were the, the, the kind of apprenticeship years going into to, to providing that. And so so going into work with arguably the, the most successful manager in the history of certainly in the history of British football mm -hmm. was terrific. I think to, to come on to it, the other things we learned from Sir Alex and, and certainly things that I would take away from a leadership style was that, that that it was about relationship-based coaching. And I, and I go on about that all the time, about you know if you're a young practitioner or a young fitness coach, it's about building a rapport and a relationship with players. And he was fantastic at that. And it's finding ways to connect, not just talking what we talk about, transactional sort of transactions throughout the day, but it, it was really about getting to know people, connecting on a human front. And that was really, really important. I guess the other thing around that was and he was fantastic, the, the, the power of observation. And again, I, I've kind of taken that into to, to really the, the kind of this space of sports science, medical fitness space in that uh, we have access to in numerous amounts of micro technology and technology and data, but the power of, of observation, watching players, their body language, how they communicate with any, he was fantastic at that. And it's kind of that, that in a blink, that, that snapshot view of where Know, getting a good feel for where a player was at any in a given moment of time. You hear about that relationship that he's had with players, and there's obviously a, n a number of famous examples that have come out since, where he's known about players' families and yeah. thing occurrences that happen in their lives and all that sort of thing, mm -hmm. isn't it? Do you think that was like a natural thing for him, or do you think like that was a skill that maybe he developed over the years? Probably a bit of both. Yeah, I think natural. I mean, every coach I've worked with, they've got strengths and weaknesses, and and, and some are. You know, if we have a a kind of continuum between over here that, that are very very relation relationship boats, it's about working with players and 
and sort of reaching out to them and others that are at that other extreme where it's just really is business in the football all the time. I think he would probably that would have been, it would have come natural to him. Probably again, you know, from from how he grew up and sort of his life experiences himself, but probably recognised the need and requirement that, that certainly when you're working in a high, high, you know, very fast-paced environment, that's Man United. It's a big club. It's a big machine. So that kind of ensuring that you kind of, and I use that, that, that expression, touch players every day. Yeah. Ensuring that you connect with some, these are the players that are going to go out and, you know, you know, give give 110% on a Saturday afternoon. So it's very important for him to understand, you know, you know what their wife's names was, what their children's names and how many children he had, where they lived and so on and so forth. And, and it's building up a holistic picture of his athletes. Yeah. And, I, and for me, that's great coaching. 100%. I wanted to go on to I mean, that's something that you've had experience with in building a team, a high performance team, and maybe some of the factors that you have to think about when building this team because yeah. it's, it's important, isn't it, to get the right people in the right sure. roles? Yeah, I think the most important thing, and we'll talk about the, 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 the growing nature of, 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 of multidisciplinary teams. I think one of the, the things, certainly, actually, so Alex used to he used to mention it all the time about the the staff were getting too big and it was a bit of half jest but it was it was half serious as well is that i think when you have a a smaller team you can have more intimate relationships the the connections that you've got within a team are, are quite tight um, and in addition to that it's really important and from my experience when you're building a high performance team it's about role clarity in in the environments where Kind of, it's not quite worked, or there's been a sort of like disconnect between the team and the wider club, or the team and, and the, the head coaches and management. Is when there's a lack of, of, of role clarity, you know, define define what everybody does, and I think with that, then comes a level of accountability. So if I know what my role is every day, very very clear. I know what my expectations are every very day, and there's a level of accountability. Yeah. Where I think. And that, that was the, the great thing about working at Manchester United was that we were quite a lean staff. I mean, number of staff that travelled to, to away games was, was circa 12. Now, when you look in the modern day game, you've got another bus for the staff that go with them. So everybody knew their job and everybody was very clear on their job and the expectations were, you know, you, you, you had to deliver what you, what you needed to deliver. And we were very, very clear clear with that. Coming back to the the building high performance teams, it's it's understanding the context of which you're working. It, it's very different. If I was to you know, try and build a high performance unit, for example, at a Sheffield Wednesday or a West Brom, it, it'd be very very different to to one at Manchester United because of different context, different resources. So I think that the second part, other than ensuring that there's that, that there's role definition and role clarity, is it. it, it is finding out and, and really understanding what is it you need to deliver, and then what resources are then available to pull that together. So, for example, you know we would love, you know, I would love people to drive insights and, and, and analytics here, but it may well be an, a, a case of okay, how can I get the most out of the team that I've got in terms of resources? Mm-hmm. And I've had them kind of d- discussions and debates about athlete management systems and. Data, you know, injury data prediction stuff, and you know some of these, some of these uh, systems are cost you know two, three hundred thousand pound. Well, if I'm working in an environment where you know I, I've got a finite resource to, to work with, I'm going to put that into human resources. So it, it's working with that. So I, I think beyond you know when, when we have the high performance we've, we've got to really define what it looks like within the context of which you're working and that, that's really really important and and the other thing around that is that you can't just transport one model that works in one context into another so probably what works here at West Brom was very different to, to my experience at Sheffield Wednesday very different to my experience at Blackburn and so on and so forth um, so that that that's important and other than that, I think it's also important to to ensure that when you know when you agree to work with it within this kind of multidisciplinary environment or a high performance team is that you know, you've you've got to have a blend of characters. You can't have you know I, I think 
it's good sometimes to have tension within a high performance working team because you'll probably have people that are opinionated that 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 that, that are quite sharp and, and and will will drive you onto another level but you can't have yeah it's a, it's a bit like Sir Alex Ferguson picking his team is that what works you'll have to have the the kind of support actors you'll have the main stars and so on and so forth so the blend and dynamic of that group is really really important and with that comes trust I think trust is so important when you're working day in, day out in a high-performance environment, having a level of trust with each other. And that's probably, if someone's to say, what 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 does success look like working in a high-performance team? Is that if, if at any given moment of time a player goes to any member of staff, they'll get the same answer. Yeah. And that's yeah. really, really important mm. for me. Yeah, 100%. I love that point. I also love the point of, it not always being that everyone's going to sit around and agree. Yeah, I suppose that comes down to the culture that you develop though at a club, doesn't it? And and you're able to feel like you can challenge people, not in a way that you're attacking them, but in a way that you want the program to improve. Yeah, because like we said today, invariably when you work in a high performance sport, you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have injury cries. You will have injuries. Mm -hmm. You will have times when. Uh, you've got performance problems. There will, will be times when players are underperforming. There will be times when you're challenged that, particularly in the modern day world, that the A player might want to go external to the club to get a, a, a treatment or, or a treatment plan. And I think that's where you've got to be really, really tight. And that's where it, it, it's very important collectively that you can challenge each other, but you create a safety. So, so before that challenge comes, is that you create a level of safety to say, well, okay, it's okay to, to speak up and challenge, and and tensions are, are part and parcel of part part and parcel of that. Um, and of course, that then prevents a, le- a level of complacency dropping in. And I think that can also happen in environments where you don't challenge each other. And for example, for example, it may well be that the the performance team, uh, you know. The, the, they're winning trophies every year, but ne- not necessarily moving on to the next level. So complacency can set in. You, you sit behind that and say, "Well, look, we're doing okay on the field, yeah, but off the field, hmm. you actually you you may be performing in spite of what you're doing rather than because of what you're doing." So, with that in mind, when you're looking at a team and you're appointing people into positions as well, are there any key attributes that you're looking for with the person? I'm thinking more of the person now rather than the actual technical side. Yeah, I think the the, the key. Key attributes you look for is, is is number one humility, and I, I think that comes in with it. Is that you're going to get really really good people across, you know, with a diverse background, and, and I'll come on to that diversity because that's really really important as well. I think humility is one is is that ensuring that you you know when we recruit young people, and Sir Alex Ferguson used to always talk about he loved recruiting young people with energy, and I think you know the part of the humility number two is energy they've got to they've got to energize the environment every single day, and that's really really important because you will be challenged and you you will have it times when it when it's when it's difficult it's not always plain sailing in in high performance sport it just doesn't work like that so humility is is one thing I look at that the second thing is the having the energy i think that the third thing really is ensuring that whoever we recruit that there's room for growth and there's a development whether that comes into the humility piece or not is that is there development potential there and when I brought blimey I think I recruited back at Man United over 20 staff but understanding that they may not be the right person here and now but if there's there's potential for growth and development they're coachable and that comes in with that coachability piece Yeah, are they coachable and we wasn't always looking for the you're not always looking for the, the the kind of end product at, at 21, 22, but have they got the potential and the energy and growth to go there? And that that's really, really important. I mean, I've often talked about, and I think this is a, a, a bigger kind of debate you know, when you're coming through as a young practitioner, do you go in as a generalist or do you, do you become a specialist really, really early? And I always felt that Certainly, from my my own foundations and my own kind of pathway, is it it, it it was great to have that holistic experience. Coventry City, my first job, worked with some fantastic staff. I was filling up the drinks bottles. I was driving the minibus with the youth team. You you you're doing the S and C stuff. You you're doing the reports. You're doing the as then it was. It was heart rate monitoring, and you are doing everything. 
and I, and I actually felt, you know, and it was, it, it was 12, 14 hour days, mm. six, seven days a week. Uh, but I think having that experience and that apprenticeship, and that's really what I, I, I look back at a wonderful time at Coventry City with some wonderful, wonderful staff is that, that they were the apprenticeship years. And, and, and having that rather than coming in to maybe, a, you know, if I, if I went into a Manchester United as my first experience and I'm just downloading, I'm just downloading heart rate or GPS data and, and, and doing, you know, a, a particular task. That's not giving me the, the kind of toolbox or the bandwidth of me that I need to develop as a practitioner. Yeah. So that, that's really, really important, I think, Ben. Yeah, and that will cross over as well, won't it? When obviously you're talking Premier League level, Premier League clubs yeah. with Premier League resources. Yeah. But the likelihood is a younger practitioner is probably going to start in the lower leagues in a role yeah. where they're doing all the things that you've mentioned. Yeah. So if you're not prepared for that, yeah. And I say that that all the time is kind of ten years. I think I said this in the in the presentation we did at West Brom is that. 10 years working in the same role at the same club isn't necessarily 10 years experience, it's 10 years of the same experience. One of the great things working in a championship now is that you, 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 get a, you get a really rich diversity of practitioners coming through that are probably working either on their own or they've got a lower number of, of staff around them. And I think it's it's a fantastic breeding ground that the championship for young practitioners, as is League One, League Two, and so on and so forth, because essentially they've got to be creative, they've got to learn on task, and that they haven't they can't get quick fix solutions and and rely and have so much reliance on technology that and that they've got to find a way to to, to make it work. And I had I've got some fantastic staff at West Bromwich Albion. Uh, I had some fantastic staff at at Sheffield Wednesday. Um, purely because, like I say, I think it, it, it's an immersive experience where you've got to make the most of what you got, and I think that's really, really important. Yeah, hundred percent. Just on that, when I speak to a lot of coaches, especially in those lower leagues, and say like, if you could change one thing about the program and the way that, that you're operating in your role, what would it be? What additions would you make? Mm -hmm. A lot of time it comes back to adding more staff. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, where's the sweet spot? Lied, you think, in terms of staff numbers? Because you referenced about Sir Alex's, uh, albeit maybe slightly um, tongue-in-cheek quote about the numbers yeah. of staff, but there must be a sweet spot in terms of this is too much and this is not enough. Yeah, I think there's been some research around sort of like small groups of seven to nine staff. Now, albeit there's no, we've had an exponential increase in, in, in staff support and, and so on and so forth over the last 10, 20 years, even the last five years, it, it's gone up again, is that the, the growing role of analysis, the growing role of individual coaches, of unit coaches and so on and so forth. So it, it's kind of gone on to that. that. There's got to be a sweet spot somewhere. And mm. I think there's got to be because there's so many different, you know, there, there can only be so many different connections and so many relationships and voices that you have. and certainly going back into an academy environment in, in two roles at Arsenal and Manchester United one thing I found that there there were there was a growing number of, vo of voices staff voices around player development so we, we'll use player development for, as an example so obviously the, the Premier League and each will be been fantastic for, for for the game and you've you've got you've got you know player care department you've got a well-being department. You've got, you know, your nutritionist, a sports scientist, the medical department. You've got the coaching department, the analysis department, and they've grown around that player. And I think that that's great to a certain to a certain extent. But there comes a point when some of the multi multidisciplinary team meetings are more about the individual units rather than the core. What the core issue is, which is the player, mm -hmm. and that's great as long as we don't lose sight of what it's about, which is about the player. Uh, and I think that's the other thing around high performance and, and building a multidisciplinary team is that whenever we focus on you know the end outcome or, or, or the performance goal, which is in player improvement or player health and wellness, it's it, it it's it's just making sure that that becomes a sole focus of, of, of what, what what we do, um, and it's not around you know player gets injured for example, the biomechanist says it's a biomechanical issue, the the physiologist will say you know it's too much load. The, the physio would would point it, it you know they're still looking at it from their own kind of individual discipline s scenario but to answer your question the, the, 
you you would think that somewhere around I'm sure the the, you know, the military and the special units in the military cover you know, they have small teams of sevens to nines and elevens and one assumes that that, that is, is is very very healthy and beyond that you start to go into the realms of of other social dynamics that that, that, can, that can distract away from what the, the, the common goal is. Yeah, I love the military as an example. That's a great point. We've added a host of brand new content onto our online community. So if you're not already a community member, make sure you go and check it out. We've added presentations recently, aligning performance and development in professional football. By, that's from our Huddersfield Town networking event. Paul Bauer, Callum Adams and Luke Dobson all presented on that. Also from our um, event at Everton, Athletic Development of Academy Players, Evidence-Based Movement Approach to SNC. That was by Dr. Mark Hulse at Everton. We've also added our latest presentation from our Leeds United event. So some insights into the physical framework at Leeds United Academy. We had a host of presenters on that one. Brilliant presentation covering all areas of academy preparation at Leeds United. And then we've also, if that wasn't enough, we've just dropped a new webinar incorporating weightlifting exercise to enhance sports performance. That's by Professor of Strength Conditioning at Salford University, Professor Paul Comfort. Paul's previously been on the podcast a couple of times before. All of that content is available to watch back on our community as well as the video version of this podcast, you can go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign yourself up there, you get yourself a 30-day free trial to see what it's all about. If you stay a member after that, it's only £4.99 per month. You get continued access to everything that's on there, including all upcoming presentations from our networking events, and you get access to our members' WhatsApp group as well. So go to footballfitfed.com, Sign yourself up to a free 30-day trial today. Let's get back to part two of the podcast with Tony Strubwick. I wanted to ask around, you've worked with some incredible players. Yeah. And this is probably quite a, a obvious question, but I feel like we can dive into a few different areas from it. But <coughs> the world's best, some of these incredible players you've worked with, what makes them successful? What makes the, the best players successful? Undoubtedly, they've got to have the skill element coming in. I mean, they've got to be talent. So the talent is a given, although I've worked with players that are highly talented that don't get to the levels they need to get to. Resilience is, is a big thing for me, Ben, and I, I, I talk about it all the time, about that, that robustness, resilience, that survivability. When we look at Ryan Giggs, for example, played to the age of 39, averaged over 40 games a season, play the game every five, five and a half days. So that, 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 that kind of having that ability to train day in, day out and deliver day in, day out, that's probably what differentiates the, the, the best from the, the ones just below that. You know, all things being equal, we, we say that the, the mindset, the kind of the physical resilience probably ties in with the, the, the mental resilience as well because you've got, you, you, you can't have one without the other. If not, you, you won't have an expression of, you know, solid robustness. It just won't happen. So I think they probably come hand in hand, the physical mental robustness. The Beyond that, um, we always talk about them athletes that are at the tip of the arrow because you work with, you know, hun- I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of footballers and what we're talking about really the best is the, is, is the tip of the arrow and that they're, what what probably differentiates them from, from, from the rest as well is that it's just a relentless pursuit of performance wanting to be the best wanting to win ensuring that everything in their life is, is, is kind of managed to a degree where uh, they facilitate their own performance so it's self-managing so you know we, we, you've heard the stories about Ronaldo coming in the first one in training every day ensuring that in his mind he comes into training with a plan it's about self-management during during training away from the training ground so all them facets of his life he made sure that the that they were controlled mm. with a view that there was that relentless pursuit of performance and he wanted to improve wanted to be the best wanted to win and so on and so forth so that there are there are plenty of players that I've worked with are really highly highly talented lads that didn't quite have that. 
mental and physical robustness in which case they, they you know that they break down or they don't quite get to the levels they need to get to and there are those that really things like practicing i mean i say it to some some of the players here is that if you're going to if you're going if you want to improve performance there's got to be a level of deliberate practice and ronaldo would have been the one and the players that and one of the great things we used to have at manchester united that the training would finish and there'd always be a 10 15 minute period where the players would scatter off and and work on their own different areas and it wasn't just kind of in a shooting session where you get a shot every seven or eight no the players would, would take their own bag of balls and go and work on their own and that was about you know still wanting to improve mm. and, and whether that that drive and that that's an internal drive to want to be the best and and continue to be the best and that's what probably differentiates them from the ones that, that are just below that level yeah, it's interesting you bring up the resilience and robustness of players because we were talking just before we started recording about schedules and and the intensity of of games now, the speed of the game. So I'm thinking more about younger players coming through, coming through academy systems. How do we ensure that they're ready to go into these schedules? Because obviously things are going to progress as well over the next few years. Yeah, well, we, we can go on to talk about the, the modern developments in the game and we one thing's for sure is that the games continue to evolve the game is about now in my opinion the game's about high intensity actions the ability to repeat high intensity actions and the ability to maintain high intensity actions and we can see that i mean the the, the, the premier league's been fantastic the last five ten years we've had unbelievable coaches some of the best coaches in the world now working in the premier league we've had this evolution and movement from from southern Europe really into into the Premier League with different ideas and and and, and the game really has been broken down and, and and looking at you know the pressing actions and so on and so forth so the games are, are, you know is evolving in, in into that way and what we'll find is an expression of players that can meet the requirements of the game coming back to the original question was about young players which I think is a really important thing I've been amazed in some of the the academies that I work with it's just the the, the, the large number of injuries that young players sustain, and uh, we can debate that all day. What is it? Okay, there's the there's the the decline of of, of physical activity in in a school, the PE curriculums, all that stuff that we can we, you know, we could spend hours on that. But more than anything else, really, for me, one of the most fundamental goals of an academy is to ensure that, that, that the, these young players are robust and can tolerate training loads. So even if it's at a young level, we, we, we scaffold the challenge up. We shouldn't be getting lots and lots of injuries at a, at a young level. We just shouldn't. And there's, there's been plenty of research, Ben, around you know, when, when young players go into their, 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 their apprenticeship years or their scholarship years is that you know, when you're 16, 17, you go into an environment, your first year professional. If a player spends six to eight months out, that's a huge chunk of his development time. And that, that has a major, major impact on the, 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 the success or their, their level of success they're going to get to a professional contract. So for me, it's really simple. Is that, yeah, we want to push the players on. We want to develop the players. But we, we've got to minimise injuries and we've got to sort of scaffold this up. And that resilience, building that resilience through really a safe, a safe, a, a, a safe structure. But there will be periods when we expose them and, you know, we're we always working on that that area of risk, that's, that's performance sport, but you know, it's calculated risk, ensuring that they can cope with, 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 with the level at under 16. Then they go into the youth team, ensuring that they can go into a five-day five day working week. Then it's into you know playing, playing senior men's football and so on and so forth. And there's got to be really, it's not something you can just throw and, 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 and leave to chance. And different individuals will have different attributes. Some can cope, some won't be able to cope, but giving every player an opportunity to thrive in that environment is really, really important. I was just about to say that. So do you feel like there's a certain... Because you'd work with players that are super suit and talented. If it was just based on technical talent alone, they'd be playing at the top of the game. But we've, we've already talked about the importance of robustness and resilience. Yeah. Are they just not going to get to that point? Is there a group of players that are just you think just aren't ready to... Yeah, I've had some. I've had some that I can probably put my hand on my heart and say that... you know. Um, um, and that, that's probably multifactorial as well. It might be part of the constitutional factors of, 
of the, the kind of psychological and physiological makeup of the individual players. It may well be that they've been they've been exposed in systems where they have broken down and, it, and then they're chasing injuries because we do know that one of the you know one of the kind of precursors for future injuries past injury. Yeah. So if you sustain a hamstring, a serious hamstring issue as a 16, 17 year old, that's going to hinder your development and progress. So that, that's why why they do what they do, why there's there's a lot of support around players. Um, and, I, and we probably saw that after COVID as well, the lockdown, I'm sure that had big implications. We, we're moving into, we, I'm sure we'll come on to it later, talking about the kind of the role of the individual coach at kind of senior level, but we're also seeing a, a little bit of a kind of, not an explosion, but you're seeing a, a growing presence of you know fitness coaches, technical coaches working with under 13s, 14s, 15s, 16s. And I, I kind of get it because if you're a parent and the, and the kind of trappings that come with, we, 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 we've gained the scholarship professional contract really, really high. So the parent puts on that. I think we've, what, lockdown did and what covid did it, it kind of it pushed individual players towards this kind of the, 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 the this individual coach because we couldn't work with them as you know we were under restrictions yeah. in the club land so uh, and of course we have the, the the social media explosion that comes with it so young players are seeing you know england stars and, and, and man united stars and chelsea stars on on social media and it's well, okay I want a piece of that as well so it's kind of it has a cascade effect but you are seeing that now and one of the, the important things around that is that you know when you have academy players you know what they're doing and you know that they're being exposed to the right right amount of work at the right amount of time so that that that's something but again we'll talk we'll talk later on around what we can do more as an industry to support that 100% I need to switch it onto the coaching side now Sports scientists, um, S and C coaches, and you talked about when you did the presentation for us at the stadium. We talked about best in class yep. and becoming best in class. I wanted to ask how, if when coaches listening, how do they become really impactful? How are they how are they really making an impact in their role and rising to the top and becoming best in class? Going back. Going back to the presentation, we we, we spoke about the, the the kind of projection, this ten year projection, and and with that comes kind of knowledge in the field, and that's really really important. So number one is is having the opportunity in the first place, is is being ready for that, putting the ground in work in. I know that in my formative years, I mean when I was sort of back in ninety three, ninety two, ninety three, I was I I was just getting hours on the on on the grass. Working with different, 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 different age groups and so on and so forth, and you're building the foundations really for, you know, planning, planning sessions, delivering sessions, thinking about critical feedback and so on and so forth. So, once, once they've had the kind of, the best coaches I've worked with, have one have had the opportunity and, and two have taken the opportunity and, and really engage in a, in, a, in a deep, deeper level of, kind of critical thinking about what they do. So getting feedback from their peers, working with mentors, aligning themselves to new ideas. Coming back to that humility piece, the coach is being coachable as well, understanding mm. that there's no one way is the right way. So having having that, and it's not just about experience per se, because I've worked with some young coaches that are fantastic. They absorb so much of the information around them and you know, t take on a little, so much, uh, even two, three years into the role. So that, 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 that's really important. I think when you get to the level now is that, how do we become top class coaches? You've still got to have that energy every day to want to improve. So, and that was a great thing about Sir Alex, even at the age of, you know, you know late sixties and seventies, he was still in the gym. One, he was still one of the first, first people in, uh, in the training ground, uh, the training ground every day, hmm. still wanting to improve, still reading, and I think that that was the other thing is is that not accepting that, okay, this is as good as I'm going to be. Still keep pushing a bit like your, your best players, the best coaches are the same. Yeah. Uh, so getting out there, and I remember Ben, and that that's something that I'd like to see a bit more of. 
I was really lucky and fortunate to be to come through at, at the right time in in the evolution of sports science in this country and and academies because the the FA chart for quality that started there was a lot of courses back then we were doing four or five weekend court when I worked at in Coventry Academy there were four or five weekends a year where all the physios came together all the doctors came together every single academy and it was it was there were some world class presentations put on and it, it was it, it was rigid it was four or five a year and 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 there were load lots of conferences that we could go to there were lots of things that we could you know to support our learning and development it was brilliant and we had kind of then a generation of 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 practitioners back then that were happy to share and that's important as well and it, yeah, it's not guarded. It's like okay, it's an open door policy, and people will reach out and talk, and that's how we improve as an industry. I'm not so sure that's that 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 that. that I mean, you're doing a great job, albeit, and it's not fluffing you up. But it, when you, it, it that that kind of development, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you're not careful, when it comes back to that, ten years experience of the same experience is that, unless you get out of the environment you're in. And expose yourself to different ideas and how it works at other clubs is that how do we know that we're actually learning and developing and that's why the kind of cpd stuff the the events that are organized is that that's so important for for developing and it'd be the same for the coaches is having that diverse experience and we always used to have coaches at man united that i mean brian kidd was the famous one that you know, at the end of every season, he'd go over to Juventus or he'd go to a, a different club and, and see how the dynamics work. And at that particular time, the, the Italian fitness industry was, was really, really strong and a lot of the ideas were generated by Italian fitness coaches. So finding out what's different and what's out there is really important. You mentioned about sort of critiquing and analysing your own work. I think that is a, a really key area for coaches to focus, isn't it? And yeah. it's probably something that we... We probably don't know how to do it that well, do we? we? We, if we're working with players, we know how to approach it with players, but yeah. for ourselves as coaches, we probably don't. Do you feel like we maybe don't do that as much now because of the sheer numbers involved in sports science in S and C coming into jobs? We feel like we maybe have to protect ourselves, not talk about our weaknesses so much, or do you think there's other other reasons for that? No, I think there's a bit of that. The I think the, the, some of the, the best people I've, I've worked with and, and, and been fortunate enough to work with are really, really honest in that and they kind of, they, they caught feedback. And that, that, that's important even, you know, I always say to my, to my team and my, my team members, look, feel free to challenge. If you don't agree with what I'm saying, that's fine. You know, that, 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 that's cool. That, that's the level of kind of sort of trust that you build up within your team to, to challenge each other and you, you create that safety first before you can challenge each other, that that's fine. There's certainly, when we think about the, the sheer numbers, and it it kind of is a problem when we've got you know, 15, 20,000 sports science graduates or whatever is a year and going into and the, the, the market's saturated now, so it's very, so difficult to get that kind of, inroad it in, into the industry and the flip side of that is that those that are occupying positions are kind of a little bit guarded or out well okay it's about it, it's about self-preservation so that can be an issue for sure the but of course going back to when i first started you know, nearly 30 years ago is that is that there weren't many many of us around mm -hmm. and, and so we, we were quite lucky then in that I wouldn't say we were the pioneers at the time, but we were quite lucky in that we we kind of made all the mistakes back then, and 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 that was that was quite refreshing. But it is hard, and and I do feel for you know for the young practitioners coming in now is that they're going to have to put the hard yards in, they're going to have to come out of universities probably, you know, won't be paying mortgages off until they're well into their thirties, and it's going to be tough for them. And what I don't want to see is, is, is us losing that, that young generation of practitioners because that's really important for us, the next generation, what it's going to look like. And I'd still like to see another kind of you know, cycle of this evolution process is that really, really is that universities now start to deliver bespoke courses that, that really teach sports scientists and fitness practitioners how to coach and what coaching looks like 
not just the kind of number side of it and the, the hardcore physiology side of it. So I think it, it needs to be linked more into really the context of what, what skills are required. And that comes back to what we're talking about is that what skills are required. And I do that with my staff and get them to rate where they're at in terms of not just kind of knowledge-based skills, but soft skills as well. Mm-hmm. And they're really, really important, particularly from a coaching perspective. I think the biggest disappointment with this is that there's some unbelievable practitioners doing brilliant work that don't necessarily get the coverage that they probably should, isn't there? And, and they might like that. Yeah. But as an industry, we probably need to be knowing about the work that they're doing, don't we? Yeah. And, and that's where it probably gets covered up. It does. And it's, it's, inter- yeah, it's interesting. You know, you'd always assume that I probably get more, I, I certainly get a lot less calls now. You know, twenty you know, twenty years into the industry, you know, ten years out of Man United. Well, no, it's, it's just over five years. But from when I started with Sir Alex, really, he's, I mean, he left in two thousand thirteen. So, you know, people always want to want to kind of know what the big clubs are doing and what Tony Stroke was doing back then. But I probably think I'm a better practitioner now. Ten years down the line, a much better practitioner. Mm. Phone don't come off as much now, but <laughs> but uh, irrespective, I think the, the point being is is that yeah. It, there's a big world out there and there's some really, really good ideas. I think what's what's needed within from our industries is bringing people together to share ideas, to share best practice. That works, that doesn't work. To understand why, you know, some of the metrics that we use have become you know, synonymous with, with what we do and what we deliver. Sort of, you know, certain KPIs that we have is that, well, okay, if we came together as as practitioners over a, over a coffee or whatever it was like we used to 20 years ago is then we can start to say well actually I do it this way and you do it a different way and so on and so forth Yeah, and, I, and, and that's how we learn as a, not only as individuals but also as an industry I know you've covered this a little bit already but I wanted to ask how you'd rate looking at different sports maybe um, even different industries to a point how would you rate the level of support that we give to players across the board The level of support the players get now, Ben, from probably a young age right the way up to, I think, it's arguably some of the best in the world in, in this country. And I'm not saying we've got the best practitioners, but the, the advancement of sports science models, the, the, the net impact of the EPPP, the guidelines, is that ensuring that we have a level of support around our players understanding that the growth of sports science certainly at an academy level and at first team level is that there's some 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 really good support mechanisms in place with some excellent members of staff around it as well from a sports science perspective strength and conditioning from a medical physiotherapy perspective so i do think that probably years ago you might have said well football or you know English football was behind the rest of the world and we might have gone out to to America to look at what they were doing out there and at that time they they might have been seen in you know your basketballs your, your NFL sports and so on and so forth that, that that they were ahead of us but I think that's kind of flipped that, that, that that's flipped in the last five ten years and there's some some wonderful staff medical staff right the way through and supporting our players at Premier League and Academy level and even in the Championship we've got some some excellent members of staff you know that are now working uh, and ensuring that that our players get a level of service the challenge behind that and again I don't want to jump the gun too much at the moment because we're going to talk about it uh, later on in the podcast is that there's a growing number of players that are now working towards external levels of support whether that's nutrition, physiotherapy, strength and conditioning. We've also got players now that have got their own analysts and their own technical coaches as well. So that kind of growing area around that, uh, and that's going to be a, a, a challenge, not just for the, for the sport. And again, I don't want to jump, still your fun, because we come back to that. But I can honestly say in, in my 20, 30 years of, 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 of being in the industry, the, the level of support now is... is is far superior to what it was 20, 30 years ago. 
and that's probably born out of the, 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 the good work that the English FA have done, the good work that the Premier League have done, generating generating high levels and standards. Going forward, I would still like to see a mandate of, number one, minimum requirements or minimum standards that you'd expect in uh, levels of support right mm. the way through. Okay, what's the minimum standards and requirements that you would expect at Premier League level for our players? What's the minimum standards you expect at Championship level and so on and so forth? And they should be the same really, whether it's a Championship player or, or a Premier League player. So with that in mind, the standard that we're at right now, where do you think, where's the next step? What can we do better? I think it's really important that uh, as an industry we, we keep pushing the standards up. I would certainly like to see a minimum minimum requirements document. I know that they do that in rugby. Is is not just across the sports science and 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 and, and, and the medical perspective, but what would be the minimum requirements that are set by the English FA, by the Premier League, to ensure that our players are best looked after? And it, it really is about uh, a, a charter for quality, which is where it started twenty thirty years ago. Is that you know, we've got to have not only the best coaching, but first and foremost is that we've got to ensure that we create the right right sports science support and, and have the right you know, medicine and, and, and health pathways in place that allow our young players to thrive. And beyond anything else is that we have to create a safe environment. So I would think that, that that's certainly one thing, Ben, that we, we, we should be, you know, what can we do better? Okay, there should be a minimum standards requirements across that there should be in addition to that then we're now looking at okay in terms of qualifications what is and it's difficult really because a lot of the other areas chartered physiotherapists have their own kind of uh, gold standards as do doctors and sport and exercise medicine practitioners will have their own they'll be driven by their own kind of guidelines of, of, of what their requirements are I would still like to see that we've never kind of cracked that in this 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 area uh, we'll have, and it's not just about qualifications and a degree, and it's not just about having been basis accredited or UKSCA, but one would assume that, that at some stage we, sh we should have our own governing body. We should have our own governing body that drives standards of mm. care and practice as in line with you know, nutritionists, uh, physiotherapists and doctors. So that that's another thing we can do better. And I think beyond... Anything else, it's ensuring that one of the things we can certainly do better is still engaging critical thinking, understanding that there are a lot of kind of processes and ways of doing things that are now becoming embedded in practice. I'll give you an example of this. When the, probably about 10 years ago, there was a, there was a paper from Ericsson about a 10,000 hour rule, um, and that was kind of, that was, that was shared with academy coaches, and it, took, and it was it was a famous case actually because two coaches, sorry, two clubs, one in the Midlands, one in the North East, said, right, we've got to get ten thousand hours. So, training hours and the kids went from ten hours a week to, to twenty five hours a week. What's going to happen? You know, they got an inj injury crisis within two three months. So I think it's really important what we can do better is start to challenge, not, I won't say pseudoscience because that, 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 that does the kind of 10,000 hour rule a little bit of a disservice, but it's really important that we have a forum as a group of people, as a group of practitioners to say, well, okay, this is the common practices that are going on. You know, we're looking at certain things in training load, but it's also about challenging each other and challenging the research. So... In addition to, to having that forum where we can challenge each other, is, is making sure that sports science is still ingrained in research. I'd love to see more research still going on in clubs. Yeah. One of the key things at Man United, that key to exercise, was the number of research. It wasn't just about we we're interested in publications. We weren't, we weren't doing it for them reasons. We're doing it for the right reasons in that we wanted, we wanted to improve. We wanted a greater knowledge base in what we were doing. And, and it's not about, well, okay, yeah, we've got 10 publications out, Man United. It wasn't about that. The, the whole essence of the, the, the performance lab that we had at Man United was making sure that, that, that we, the, the things that we're looking at are, are actually quite valid, understanding the insights that we were delivering to our coaches were, were, were working from a solid foundation of, 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 of solid research principles and sports science principles. 
and and that was that was again coming back to the our success at Man United, we had to have a, a quality, a level of quality and assurance that what we were doing was the right thing and gold standard. Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, and a lot of that that you've touched on there, obviously the research comes with time, but it's like short term hmm. changes that we could make straight away or put a bit bit more focus to straight away. If we were looking a bit more long term, which I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes with sports science across your career so far, yeah. where do you see the like the next five years and beyond? Well, sports science still lives. I think people, I think I was criticised on Twitter a little while back about talking, talking about the the kind of iPad generation. Really, is that you know you're a player come in and. You put an iPad in front of someone. I'm saying about connect with a, you know, all the things that we, we've kind of discussed in and around this topic and in, in the session. It, it's for me, sports science has still got huge value to to, to the game of football. And I think the sports science I'm talking about is, is the one we just mentioned about that that's in, in, you know, inherently ingrained in in research principles. You know, the, the whole essence of sports science and what that was was. You know, sports science is the is a, is a study of the, the you know all the scientific applications around sport to improve performance, to improve performance, to minimise injuries, to support the health and well-being of the player, and that's going to probably be needed more in, in my opinion. If we're assuming that the game is going to continue to evolve, and coaching practice is going to change, now more than ever, we need greater training insights. We need more contextual research into how the game's changing. And we're not just talking about global global training load measures of distance covered and high intensity speed and, 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 and sprint distance. We're talking about, okay, what's actually happening within the sessions? The, the density of the actions, the repetition of the actions. And it's that, that you know, understanding what's going on in, in the, the changing nature of how drills are changing and exercises are changing, us really understanding what it is rather than giving a report back to a coach and going, well, yep, we hit zone, zone five and zone six markers and so on and so forth. And, and the, the flip side of that is that we can't continue to just chase numbers for the sake of chasing numbers. And when I spoke about things being embedded in coaching practice is that, okay, we must hit... 2,000 meters of high speed. Well, who said that? And, and mm -hmm. how does it? How do we get there contextually within within a football football specific context? So that that's certainly something that we can we 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 can always you know what what the next five ten years are going to look like. I, I'd like to see a new generation of sports scientists coming in, practitioners coming in into the game really that that, that have an opportunity really to to take the game onto another level. So it's going to, and with that is, is, is looking at different courses, looking at different kind of qualifications, looking at different memberships to ensure that we really retain some of the best people within, within our industry that can kick it on. Um, the other thing around that, and I'm going to touch on, on the kind of the, 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 the increasing role of the external practitioner. I, I did a, a presentation probably about six years ago to catapult St George's Park and I said well in the next five years there's going to be a growth of the individual coach and I think some rugby dude yeah, we wouldn't let that happen our coaches wouldn't let that happen and all that and you know where we're at now it, it, it's just a it's just part and parcel of the modern game yeah. and, and I'm cool with that Ben it's kind of I understand that there's growth in the industry and growth of the, the the individual fitness coach the individual physiotherapist because players there's a change in nature of the players that are coming through now. There's more of an emphasis on individuality. They want an individual service around them that they might not necessarily feel they get. Mm. We should be compelled to deliver that, certainly at the top level, mm. but we've also got to understand in this kind of evolving nature of the, the generation Z athlete now, whatever it is, uh, is, is that they want that personal touch or that individual approach around them, which I'm cool with. The flip side of that, there has to be a level of governance around it. I know some fantastic guys that are working with, with players, whether it be physio, soft tissue therapists, um, and 
that's that that the whole area just needs to be cleared up a little bit certainly in the future in in terms of ensuring that our players get a good level of service that, that when they go out and they work outside of of the club that that we know that there's an emergency action plan for them we know that they're not going to be training in dubai at, you know 90 degrees heat where there's not a level of support around them because that that that's putting the athlete in harm's way, mm. so that that whole area will need uh, regulating, if, if you want. And whether that comes from individual clubs, whether it comes from the Premier League, the the, the, the Championship, whatever. So uh, I accept it. We we saw it. I saw it at Manchester United over ten years ago. So we knew it was coming. Yeah, and didn't have a problem. As long as there's a, a close connection and. Uh, there's constant communication between the external and there. Uh, I mean, the old, you know, the old-fashioned traditional coaches wouldn't have had it. Right, oh, this is the service you get. But, but I get it. I get why players want to do it. Mm. Uh, I think when you know, there's a kind of whole industry around monetizing things, and it becomes an industry in its own right. And with that, you know, the, the individual. Individual practitioners outside of the clubs are going to going to. It's a way to monetize things. So I think again, it just needs a level of regulation. Because I know there's certain people that want to fight it, isn't there? And and so I hope that it goes away and players just return back to clubs and work with the clubs solely. But how you've said quite openly before that it's it's not, is it? It's going to, if anything, it's probably going to get more popular. And we factor that into the approach we take forward as well. We need to need to decide what the approaches we're actually going to take. I mean, working at international levels has helped with that because when, when I mean, you, you flip side it a little bit. When when the international players come away with us for Wales, for example, they've all got their their their, their personal fitness coaches at, at, at the respective clubs. They're all doing different things, and we're just managing and facilitating that process. Yeah. So it, it does become a bit like that. But the the great thing about working for Wales and at international level is there was constant communication. I ensured that there was. Always dialogue, pre-camp, post-camp, phone calls. It wasn't just it wasn't just via emails and stuff. It was okay. How's Player X doing? Yeah, and, and, and you have that open collaboration with them, and and and, and that's going to be you know as much as we we can resist it or fight it. There's there's going to have to be an acceptance that this collaborative approach is going to have to happen. Be, you know, and. As long as there's a level of kind of, you, you certainly it comes back to role clarification and okay, you, the, these are the ground rules. You, you, you're contracting the ground. This is the, the way that we contract, the way that we work. You know, if you're working with my player, there's a, there's a level of discussion, uh, knowing that my player and, and and that's always a difficult one when you bring th- you know specialists into a club like sprint coaches. They'll come in on a Tuesday. They want to deliver that in isolation. They want to deliver the sprint, but they've got no understanding of what happened on the Monday, the Wednesday, the Thursday, the Friday, how many games they've had, mm. where they're at in terms of re- re- recoverability and so on and so forth. So there's going to have to be a way of, of working this through where really it comes back down to it. The athlete's at the centre of the plan, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, But it's there, it's happening, and I think yeah, you have to embrace change and you have to understand the, the evolution of the modern-day player. Yeah, I love the focus on the transparency and the communication because I think that's absolutely key, isn't it? And that's cool. probably the difference between practitioners that do it well and do it responsibly and the ones that don't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the biggest difference, I feel, isn't it? Yeah, and it comes back down then to, to levels of trust and, and building that level of trust. And that's really important, that, that transparency. And, and it was the same with when you work at international level and, and club land. So, yeah, 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 really important, that piece. Oh, that's been... An incredible insight. I really enjoyed that. I think we covered some great stuff there. I put out a few times about people suggesting guests for the podcast and your name always comes up. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that take an incredible amount away from that. So thank you very much for hosting us, but also coming on the podcast. No, thanks for having me on, Ben. Like I say, it's been a long time coming, but yeah, really enjoyed that. Good luck. Big thank you to Tony for giving up his time and coming on the podcast, but also, like I mentioned at the start of the episode, thank you for hosting us at the training ground as well. I love doing these podcasts in person. I think it's a much better conversation. Obviously, it's not always going to work that way, um, but 
it was great to get down, see Tony and have a discussion. I think we covered some great content in the episode. So I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening as well. As always, I mentioned about sharing the episode. I really would appreciate that. I think there's some real value in this episode for a lot of different practitioners. So make sure you send it out to WhatsApp groups or people that you think will benefit from it. I think some of the content as well isn't just for sports scientists, for strength and conditioning coaches. Send it out to anyone involved in football, anyone with an interest in football. It covers some great topics, so please give it a share. And as always, if you haven't left us a review, please head over to iTunes, uh, click the five stars, leave us a short comment over on iTunes. You can also do the same over on Spotify, but it's even easier. Literally just click the five stars over on Spotify. I also want to say at this point a massive thank you to our sponsors, both Rezzle and Hytro. I really appreciate all the support and everything they do for the podcast. On this one, in terms of takeaways for me, there was a couple of standouts. I think one thing was around the size of the team. It's not always that bigger is better. Obviously, it comes back to more people involved, the sort sort of more cooks in the kitchen more ideas which can work well under the right culture, under the right environment. It's not always a case of just growing and growing and growing. I think that's obviously what we discussed. Where is the sweet spot in terms of amount of staff, which I thought was really interesting on getting Tony's point of view on that. And then the other area is the work with external practitioners. It's something that is becoming very common in the game now. And I thought it was great to get Tony's views on it. I've heard about it, heard him speak about it a couple of times before. But I think his approach is very practical and it's something that needs to be considered from both sides. There needs to be a lot of transparency, a lot of communication between an external practitioner and someone at a club and acceptance as well that this is going to happen. Players are going to pursue this and what is the best way of moving forward, getting the, getting the best environment, the best programme for players. So I think that was what I took away from it. I'd love to hear what you took away from this one. It's something that I'm going to be pushing over in our community members' WhatsApp group in terms of takeaways. So I'd love to hear um, everyone's takeaways from this episode because I'm sure there's plenty from it. And as always, thank you for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I will speak to you again next week in episode 230.